Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 130th show. Today's guest is leadership expert, Dr. Gary Crotez, author of The Idea Mindset. I really liked this book. It was really interesting, especially for people who are kind of stuck about where they want to go with their careers. Please tell me about, please tell us about your professional background before we jump into the book. Well, Mark, thanks so much for inviting me on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this for, for a very long time. Um, so, uh, where I am now, I describe myself very much as a pluralist. So I'm an executive coach, I'm an author, speaker, podcaster, and I'm also a tech executive in uh, a, a um, tech startup developing a digital coach as well. My background's pretty eclectic. So my original training was a medical doctor. I'm based here in the UK, just north of London. I did my medical training and a PhD here, here in the UK. And I actually, instead of going into practicing in medicine as a doctor, I went into business instead. So I spent about a decade in consulting and strategy consulting, and then at some point realized I should go get a proper job. So I spent a few years in the retail industry. So I was a senior executive in a mother and baby retailer and in a luxury retailer. And then in about 2019, I started to take my kind of coaching side hustle and turn it into a full-time thing um, and start to take my ideas on my brain and sketch it out on paper. And that eventually became my book, The Idea Mindset, which was published in January of this year. Before we get into the book, what's the hardest part about being a good executive coach? That's a great question. So for me, where I had been in executive roles, the biggest, biggest thing was about letting go of my opinion and my views. So I went and did formal coaching training. And I was described to people, it feels like a little bit of having a lobotomy that I needed to remove the part of my brain that when somebody's talking, I'm sitting there going, I've got an opinion on that. In my experience, this is what you should do. Actually, the best executive coaching has no opinion. Um, and the best executive coaching just creates a space and time for the person that you're with to figure things out for themselves. And what I found was the more I let go, the more effective it was. And so I actually find it intellectually incredibly stimulating and exciting kind of conversation. But you have to switch off that part of your brain that's got the opinion in it. Yeah, I know I do consulting in the very beginning because I was always an operating guy. I have definite opinions about what they should do. And if they don't do it, then I would get upset the fact that they weren't listening and I knew the right thing. But now I don't I don't worry about any of that. And you're more like a therapist than anything else, just yeah, helping them figure right. things out from themselves by probing with the right questions and so forth. And then they, right. they, they feel better from it. So so why did you write this book? Well, this is interesting. So, so when I first started uh, coaching, I didn't have my formal coaching training at that time. So I, there was a lot that I learned about coaching afterwards. But I felt when I was working with people that it was very useful to have the conversation. But often I was talking about the same kind of topics like, you know, what is your long-term vision? What are your goals? How are you going to get there? And I thought, actually, we can make this so that it's more effective by giving people structured homework to do between sessions. So the structured homework was 
here's some questions to work through and think, think through. Go and talk to people that know you well, get them to give you feedback. And then next time we have a session, we can talk through it and you, you, can, you can talk through what you've learned. And so I was, I was running that for probably two or three years. And then I looked at all that content and I thought, you know, I could turn this into a book and then I could take myself out of the equation. So one of my big passions is about uh, broadening access to coaching. Coaching is an incredibly powerful thing, but coaches are pretty expensive, you know, so not everybody can afford access to a coach. So I thought, well, what if I could create the essence of the best parts of the coaching journey in a book? So for the cost of a book, you can access those questions and that reflection that helps you to move yourself forward. So, and, and, from doing that was did anything open up in your own mind like i've written six books and when i start writing the books then all of a sudden there are things that i see that i hadn't seen before was there anything you learned from writing this book that even changed your consulting practice i think a really big part of it was figuring out how to ask a really really good question so if i look back to what i first wrote and compare it with what ended up in the book what i first wrote related quite a lot to my kind of corporate training and development. And the language I used was quite corporate. And I didn't see that because it was just my language. And then when I took my first draft, which was about 75,000 words long, and I gave it to my editor, who's a brilliant communicator and nonfiction editor. And she was like, the idea is really good. And the concept in here is really strong. You just need to use literally completely different words. And the different words you need to use, the ones that will really resonate in the mind of the person you're talking to. So it became much more evocative. It became much more warm. It became much more natural. So the final book is half the length of my first draft. And actually, I probably threw away 50 to 60,000 words of content as I went through Whoa, the editing process. That's a lot of content. And that, you know, was that was a therapeutic process because in doing, I had to get what was in my head onto the paper so that I could let go of it. And in doing that, actually, it's very cathartic. And the book that I came to is something that, that I'm really proud of because now, you know, I, I get feedback from people of all walks of life. And that was always my thing with broadening access to coaching. It's not a book just for senior executives. It's a, it's a book for creatives. It's a book for artists. It's a book for entrepreneurs. And I coach a really broad range of people. So my coaching is in the US, the UK, and in Europe. And at one end, you've got you know, senior executives, C-suite executives of major corporations. But I also coach actors and dancers and stage performers and sports people um, who are you know, not wealthy necessarily or particularly successful necessarily. But what is fascinating for me is that a good question is as applicable to a C-suite executive as it is for somebody who's unemployed or somebody who's an artist. And that's what I've tried to keep in the book and bring through in, in the book. Uh, from your coaching itself, has how long does somebody actually stay as a client? Like what's your life expectancy as a consultant? It's my longest standing coaching clients um, are clients that started with me um, getting on for four years ago, I would say. So some of my coaching clients, they will be one or two sessions, but the average is probably, you know, a coaching relationship for something like six to 10 sessions, but the sessions are quite far apart. So on average, they, they start to be about a month apart, but I'm very clear with people. I say, you know, we should have a coaching conversation when it's the right time. So if now's not the right time and you're still noodling on that thing, then that's okay. And 
what are the concepts that, that, that I've spent a lot of time, you know, evolving in my mind is this idea of an unlock moment, which is a remarkable moment of clarity. And sometimes when I'm, I'm coaching with my clients and they're going through the idea mindset journey, there'll be an unlock moment where they might've been figuring something out for a long time. And my first ever coaching client who went through the idea mindset um, was somebody who was an actor. And the question that he landed on that he was trying to figure out was, am I pursuing success or am I pursuing happiness? And it feels like a simple question, but actually that's really hard. And in his world, everybody around him was saying, you're supposed to be in this kind of role. You're supposed to be winning those kinds of awards. You're supposed to be achieving these kinds of outcomes. And he was driving for those things and finding himself not happy because he was permanently under pressure. And it was actually probably about a six-month period where we had two or three formal coaching conversations in that time. And I remember his unlock moment because he texted me and I received the text at four o'clock in the morning. And he said, I figured it out. It's happiness. I want to pursue happiness. And I'm comfortable that if I'm happy, even if I haven't become successful and I haven't made any money and I'm still living with my parents, that's okay. And from that moment on, from that moment of clarity, everything became simpler. Because when he was faced with a fork in the road, he knew how to choose whether to go left or to go right. And what's interesting is having found that remarkable moment of clarity about choose happiness over success for him, and it took months and months and months for him to figure that out, he's become more successful than ever before. Because, of course, he's let go of the pressure of trying to succeed. He's placed himself in the places where he is happiest. And, of course, then he performs the best. And that comes across to his audience. And that turns into new roles, bigger roles, bigger opportunities. And, and so, you know, for me, the essence of the idea mindset is finding this clarity, clarity of what you think, clarity of the decisions you make, clarity of what you're going to do next. That's what was going to be my next question is, was how do you define the ideal mindset? So it's very interesting. A lot of people say the idea mindset. So that's a book about ideas and it's a book about innovation. And I said, no, not at all. It's nothing to do with ideas. Idea is an acronym and an acronym for what I consider to be the four components of a fulfilling future life, you know, work life or, or your whole life. So idea stands for identity, direction, engagement, authenticity. That's the IDEA of idea and the idea mindset. And what that means is identity means figure out who you are, what you're about, what your natural strengths are, what your values are, how people perceive you. That's your identity. Direction is a combination of What's your long-term plan? Not, not necessarily a really detailed view of where you want to be in 10, 20 years' time, although some people do have that. But also figure out when you're faced with a fork in the road, how do you decide whether you go left or right? Is it based on happiness? Is it based on money? Is it based on fame? Is it based on what your friends are doing? You know, you figure out for you. That's the direction. For a future with engagement and authenticity, so aim for a future that you love, and a future you love is often very closely aligned with your strengths, your talents, um, and you know the environment you put you in, yourself in. And then authenticity, the deep connection with values and sense of purpose. And what's fascinating for me when I work with my coaching clients is how many people have no idea really what their values are. And I talk to them about their values being the things that are so important to them that it makes them start doing something they weren't doing before, or it makes them stop doing something that they, they, they have been doing before. It changes your behaviors when, when your values are either activated or, you know, or, or trodden on. And so as you design your life, you've got to start with 
who am I? So step one in the idea mindset journey is figuring out your identity. So it's talking to people around you, asking them where you are at your best, figuring out what your strengths are, figuring out what your values are. And that's really the foundation for this journey that you go on. But eventually, when you want to ask big questions like, should I leave my job or should I stay in my job? Should I move to a different country or not? Should I start up this side hustle or not? It always comes back to, well, what's going to make you happy? What connects with your values? What is your sense of drive and purpose? What gets you out of bed every day? So that's really where it comes from. And all of that comes from my own personal experience of professional and personal change. So in my profession, as we talked about before, you know, I went through very significant career changes from medicine to business, from consulting into a corporate world. But also in my, in my secret double life, so alongside my work life, I was also with my wife, a professional ballroom dancer. So I was in the arts world, in the dance world, but also in a competitive world, in the sporting world. It's a, it's a big deal in the US. And we used to compete in the US, in the UK, in Russia, all around the world. We were you know, a, quite a high level couple. And we learned about, well, this is our passion. And we compromised a huge amount in order to do that. But we did that because we had a really clear understanding for each of us individually and together what drove us. So that's really what I'm trying to communicate in the idea mindset. I'm going to ask you about the ballroom dance, but we have a question from the audience. And I always like to take questions as they pop up. How do you deal with the imposter syndrome that most business coaches, consultants, and even business owners feel in the early stages? I think that's he a really, put, really He put imposer, but I'm assuming I think he means imposter. Yeah, it's, it's a great, great question. And, and I talk to a lot of people at very different levels. You know, everybody experiences imposter syndrome, I think, to, to some degree, particularly when they're taking on a new role. And I think that for me, you know, there's, there's many experts, much more expert than me on, on imposter syndrome. But for me, the, the thing is, how can you let go of worrying about what everybody else thinks? And how you let go, for me, is being really clear and confident and comfortable with who you are. So sometimes imposter syndrome, for example, you know, you've taken up a new role and there's all this, this sense of expectation around you of who you should be and how you should act and how you should lead and how good you should be. And once you can get to a stage where you can say, well, this is me, this is how I choose to show up, this is what I'm good at and I'm not good at that other stuff and that's absolutely fine. You start to let go of societal pressure on you to be something you're not. And, you know, that's not an easy route. And I don't want to imply it is an easy route. But actually, you can get to this stage. Marshall Goldsmith just wrote a really interesting book called The Earned Life, which is all about letting go of regret and letting go of this sense that you need to achieve something in the future in order to be happy. It's something about centering on the presence and just being comfortable in your own skin. I have to tell you, I, I'm always going after the, the thing in the future and always have to remember, just enjoy the moment as it mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. So that, that's always the hardest part. Life goes by in a blur. So why do so many people live with regrets and don't try to change their path? And we all know people like that. I mean, I have friends that talk about writing books. They have great titles, but they never do it now. Years have gone by. I have one friend, it's like 17 years. I've been hearing about this book that he's never even written one word. So what's stopping people from taking that step forward? And so that that's really interesting. Um, being an activator is is a strength that not everyone has. So I do a lot of work with the Gallup Clifton Strengths model with my coaches, and I'm personally an activator. So it's one of my top five strengths. 
which means that for me, change is very natural and easy and exciting. You know, to, to start something new is something I'm very energized by. And that's not everybody. So I think there's the first thing to say is that for there to be an assumption that everybody should be like I am, is actually a false assumption. So, you know, when, when you look at people's talents and strengths, an appreciation that we're all different and that's okay is a kind of foundational principle of that. But I think there's also a piece that a lot of people who want to change actually live in a life where change is not habitual. And when they start to be then thrown into a, a world of much greater uncertainty and a need to change, and you know, the world as it's been in the last few years has been just, you know, absolutely, we're all surrounded by that environment. I think that's then very difficult to sort of move with that sense of inertia in where you are. So I, I often talk to people about how they can start to create a habit for change and adaptation. And they can be small adaptations, but it just begins the process of going, change is normal. We're changing all the time and that's fine. The second thing I'd say on that is an appreciation that there are multiple ways to be happy. There are multiple routes to being happy. It enables you to let go of the regret of, or well, maybe I made the wrong decision. Because actually my philosophy is, you made the decision you made. You made it at the time you made it with the best information available, with the best will in the world, with the best, you know, with 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 your head and your heart. And you have to go with that. So when I left medicine, for example, when I, I was in my late 20s, I didn't know whether I was going to be successful in the next thing that I did because I didn't understand the next thing I was going into. So the only commitment I could make was in making that change, I've got to jump in with both feet give it the best chance I can. And if it if it fails, then I've got to figure out what I do next and I've got to own that journey. A question from the audience. How can you persuade someone who would benefit from coaching but claims they are uncoachable? Is it even possible? That's, that's a great question. Uh, I wouldn't, is the, is the short answer. So <laughs> coaching works um, when the person being coached wants to be there. As simple as that. So I have three questions. When, when somebody says to me, how do I know whether you should coach me? And I go, there's three questions. Question one is, is it coaching? Is coaching the right intervention? Or do you need mentoring? Or you need training? Or you need potentially even counselling? Secondly, is it coaching now? Or is it coaching in three months' time? Or is it coaching in a year's time? Um, and then the third one, and if it is coaching, and it is coaching now, is it coaching with me? Um, and that's something about interpersonal chemistry and some, something to do with styles of coaching. But an HR director said to me about a year ago, she said, how do you work with coaches where, you know, in our organization, we send them to you and they don't want to be there. I said, I don't coach them because coaching is not successful. If the person isn't themselves motivated to change, coaching is a process of your personal development and growth motivated by you. It's not for me as your coach to make you be there make you do it, motivate you to do it. All I can do and all I should do is create the space and environment within which you can develop yourself. Um, and it's an it, it, I find it a fascinating dynamic to create that kind of space, but it comes from the person. It comes from the person who, who is going through that coaching journey. You know, that's the whole thing about life, right? Is that if you're, no matter what it is, if you want to write a book, it's up to you. If you want to... Um, get off of drugs or alcohol, because I always hear um, people who work with um, people who have addiction issues that at the end of the day, no matter how many times you send them to get clean, if they don't want to get clean, they're not getting clean. If they don't want the help, they're 
it's you're just wasting time and effort. It's all up to them. But when they're ready for it, coaching, whatever it is, then that's the time to um, give them that space, as you uh, call it. How important is it to have a life partner, family, friends, and colleagues supporting one's new ambitions and are realizing one is drowning and it's time to make a change? What if you don't have that support? What should a person do? Um, I think that's an assumption. I think that's an assumption. I, I think it's undoubtedly a, you know, normally a nice thing to have, to have people around you. But back to the previous point, it comes from you. So, so there's no need, there's no requirement to have people around you. It has to come from you. And I've spoken to people who have actually, to, to give themselves the motivation to move to where they needed to move to, actually, they decided that the right thing for them was to separate themselves from some of the people around them and to go into an environment where they were actually on their own. And I wrote about a sports person in, in the book called Katarina Johnson Thompson, who's very famous. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. And two more questions. Yeah, and that but that's but that's her story. We'll come we'll come back to that. But that's that's the essence of that story. Um, and so again it comes to if you're reliant on other people in order to make the change, then you're not yet taking full ownership. And what I love about the book is that I know I can confidently write in the book you are showing commitment because the book is hard. You know, it is a book of questions. You have to think about stuff, the big, difficult questions. You have to write stuff down. It's a journey to go through. And so I know that if you get to the end and you're reading the last page of the book, you have made that commitment. Nobody else has done it for you. Nobody bought the book for you. So I like that. Whereas actually sometimes in a coaching conversation, people are there because they've been sent by their organization or somebody else told them they should do it. Finding that accountability and ownership is is the key. So I think it's great. And I encourage people to either have a team around them or have people, you know, build a network of people around them. They don't have to be their family. They don't have to be their partner. Um, Marshall Goldsmith, again, he came on my podcast and he said, um, I've been talking, I think almost every day for 25 years to this guy who I don't actually know very well, but we speak each day and we uh, keep each other accountable on our goals. So, you know, he's connect, He's making these connections with people, you know, that are not in his personal contacts list, but actually they're, they're just providing that support that you need to keep you on that path. And I think that's, again, it's, it's one of the things that I think find amazing about coaching, that it doesn't depend on everybody else making you do it. So we'll jump to this question. I'll go back to my other questions later, since we brought up Katrina Johnson Thompson, world champion, British uh, hemtathlete. And, and she went through a series of failures. She suffered at the World Championships, the Olympics. How did she overcome these failures to succeed? And, and what can we learn from her? She's a really, really interesting athlete. Uh, and I'm a great fan. So she's still competing. She's probably now towards the end of her career. So, so she was one of the most talented up-and-coming athletes, in the, female athletes in, in, in the UK, a heptathlete. Um, and, you know, she came after another uh, heptathlete, Jessica Ennis, who was the Olympic champion. So, you know, big shoes to fill. Um, and Olympics, World Championships, European Championships, she would always not quite succeed. But the reasons that she'd fail wouldn't be she just didn't run fast enough in any of the races. It would be, so the World Championships in, I think it was 2015 in Beijing, she was doing really well. She was in contention for the gold medal at the World Championships. And then she fell three times in the long jump and scored no points at all. Um, and that was quite classic. It looked 
from the outside in like a sort of like a mental uh, resilience kind of breakdown. And she was living in the north of England and training in, you know, we have excellent athletic training facilities in the UK. And she decided to move countries and she relocated to a small training group in the south of France in Montpellier um, and away from all of those sophisticated training facilities. And she didn't speak French and she'd never lived alone and she had to get herself a little flat and she'd go to training uh, and it was a very relaxed environment with a very uh, thoughtful and capable coach. And it just took her away from all of the pressure of expectation. There's a huge pressure in British athletics for, for people to succeed because we typically don't have that many people who come through to medal. And four years later, she won the gold medal at the World Championships in Rio. Um, and taking herself away from that high-pressure environment and creating the environment in which she could build her resilience and create that string of successful performances that you need to put together to win the gold medal in the heptathlon event. That was, that was the key. And, and it, there was a little quote that I picked up in the book, which was when she reflected back on her journey, and we'd all been with her and seen this struggle that she'd had over the years, she said, she figured out those performances don't represent me as a person. They don't make me a bad person. I've got myself a little life. I moved to France. I just sorted through my life. And it was that sense of just finding that grounded space, place on her own, doing her own washing. She talks about that. It's like just making things simple enabled her to put everything together and come through and become the champion that, that she always promised to be. So. takes an, an enormous amount of resilience, which yeah. is my next question. You read about the importance of resilience and how does one build up resiliency, especially when they might have gotten comfortable with their old job and now they uh, took the leap and are taking lumps as change is never easy? I think that resilience is um, is interesting because I think that, I mean, you can certainly look at people who are building resilience and you can pull together some common themes of different things you could do. And in the book, I talk about uh, the six P's of resilience, which is about building up your positive mindset, developing your problem solving, building a sense of perspective, uh, building your self-awareness, which I, I call kind of an awareness of personality, persistence and partnering, partnering with others to, to be sort of accountable. But there's also something about jumping in with both feet. So it's, it's not a big complex journey. Resilience is about practice of putting yourself a little bit outside your comfort zone and committing um, and being not unafraid, not afraid to fail. So I, I spoke on my podcast last week, actually, to a guy called Alex Budak, who is a professor at uh, University of California, um, Berkeley uh, Half School of Business. And he was saying in one of his lectures, um, which is all about becoming a change maker, he sends people out of the room um, to go and ask somebody a question to which they get rejected. And that's the challenge. You have to go and be rejected and then come back and they talk about it in the next session. And he said, one of the girls in the class went out and went to the cafe and said, I want a glass of orange juice for free. And they went, okay, here you go. And then she said, and now I want a second glass of orange juice for free. And they went, okay, here you go. And then now I want a third glass of orange juice. And at that point they went, no, okay, I don't think I can give you three free glasses of orange juice. But actually he said, it's that practice of getting rejected that helps you to build the resilience to make change happen. For me, my practice is the practice of changing roles, changing jobs, changing careers. I have no fear of doing it now because 
I've done it before, you know, and I've figured out sometimes it didn't work out, but it was still fine. And letting go of that idea that there's only one path and, you know, you better hold on really tightly to that tightrope because if you fall, it's a 10,000 foot drop. Actually, you know, for many, many people, there are, you know, your tightrope is wider than you think. And if you, as you build up your resilience, what you're doing is actually widening the width of the tightrope. That's the way I, I sometimes talk to my coaches about it. How can you broaden the width of the path? So it just reduces the risk of feeling like you're going to fall off. And that's all about building up your resilience. How important is exercise and diet when looking to make a big life change? So I talk about that in the book and I talk about that with my coaches. And this is going back to my dancing background. So when I was a professional dancer, I had to be very mindful of diet and training and exercise and stamina, those kinds of things. For me, it was really helpful, not because I was trying to hit a certain weight or trying to hit a certain muscle mass or something like that, but it was just part of my whole self. And so what I say to people now is, you know, I am absolutely anti the idea that there is a right diet or a right exercise regime or a right, right, right weight to hit. What I say to people is, you think about whether that's a part of your journey or not, and not is perfectly fine. If it is a part of your journey, you figure out what's important to you, where you'd like to get to. And for a lot of people, they feel, you know, if I could lose a little bit of weight, if I could gain a bit of muscle mass, if I could improve my diet, I'd feel a little bit healthier, I'd have a bit more energy. Actually, it just helps me get through that inertia and onto the beginnings of the path I wanna to get to. And sometimes they say, it's not that I wasn't trying to have diet and exercise part of my plan, but I'd never really thought of it as part of my mental change journey. And so it's just introducing the idea that if it's right for you, feel free to add it in and you decide what's right for you. Um, and so it's just, I, I think it can be very successful as a part of the whole plan. And don't leave it out and go, well, I want to start a business and I want to start running around 100 miles an hour and I want to do my side hustle. And I'm not even thinking about how I maintain my energy to do all those things. That's really important. Uh, question from the audience. Pon uh, pondering your mention of self-awareness, do you believe it's more important to double down on your strengths or try to improve in areas of your deficits? Ah, well, as a strengths coach, I'm going to say very clearly, um, and this was this was a really unlocked moment for me, uh, you know, quite early in my career. It's the former. So, we we have strengths and we have weaknesses. Um, a strength is really is two things. It's something that is in some way a natural talent. You find it easier to do than other people. You enjoy doing it, but also you've invested in becoming really good at it. So, you know, you might be as you are, you know, and uh, you podcasting and communicating and presenting and interviewing is a strength, but it's a strength because you've invested in it. But you also have a natural talent for communication. A weakness is something that you're not naturally talented at, you don't find as easy as other people. Uh, but also, it's only a weakness if it actually trips you up. So I often say, you know, if you're, if you're a finance director, and you're not very analytical, well, that is a weakness, because you're a finance director. But if you're a javelin thrower, and you're not very analytic, it just doesn't relate to you. And the world that we live in, you know, from our parents and our schooling and our first bosses, you know, we're surrounded by people telling us about our weaknesses. So we're never going to spend not enough time focusing on our weaknesses. What we actually find is that we spend hardly any time working on our strengths. And in my first coaching session with most of my clients, the first thing we're doing 
is looking in their, at their strengths in a, in, a, in a formal way. So I use the Gallup Clifton Strengths Assessment, which is a kind of £50, $50 kind of assessment. So it's you know, not free, but it's not hugely expensive. Um, and, and I do that with people who are in corporate roles, in business roles, but also people who are artists or dancers or other kinds of things too. And it's equally applicable. And that helps you become familiar with, well, what are your strengths? So bring that, bring that to life for me. I discovered that my number one strength is a thing called maximizer, which is I'm only interested if, in something if it's already good, but I want to make it world-class. And it's different from being competitive where I want to beat somebody else. I don't want to beat somebody else. I just want everything that I do to world-class. And I'm pretty good at doing that. And I'm investing all the time in developing how to do that. So a big, big part of finding your sense of identity is discovering this understanding of what you're naturally good at. And if you don't want to do an assessment and spend money on doing that, just talk to people that know you well and ask them the question, tell me about the times when you think I'm really at my best and I'm really loving what I'm doing and I'm in my sweet spot. What does that look like? And they probably know better than you because they're observing you all the time. They see from the outside in. They're unbiased, hopefully. Um, So you can get to your strengths in lots of different ways. And I would say, don't worry about your weaknesses because you're probably aware, you're probably working on them anyway. Focus on your strengths. That's where the opportunity lies. And, and it's more positive and you feel better about it. Completely agree. Completely agree. Yeah. yeah. When, when you're looking to make a big life change, should you check out for a period of time or dive right into a new direction? You talk about this in the book. Yeah, it's, it's very personal. It's very personal. So, so I've had times when I've checked out and I've had times when I've just gone for it. But what I say to people is when you know, you know. So there's a little quote in the book that is, give your brain the space and time to do the thinking it needs to do. And that could be an hour or a day or a week or a year. Um, And so, you know, the story I told earlier about the guy who was figuring out happiness or success, if I'd said to him, and we will have a session next Wednesday and tell me on Wednesday what the answer is, I don't know what he would have said, but it might not have been the right answer. The time when it was the right answer was the time he found that moment of clarity and he knew and he texted me and it was four o'clock in the morning and he said to me uh, it's happiness do you think I'm right and normally as a coach I would go it's not for me to know whether you're right or not but I actually said to him yes you're right um and he was like why, why are you so sure and I said because you just texted me at four o'clock in the morning so it must be deeply meaningful for you but you let me know if you think that's wrong um, and years later, we still talk about that moment. And, it, you know, it's a really interesting conversation, but it's the time it takes. So whatever, whenever you have that clarity and whenever you absolutely know, I generally say sleep on it another night um, and talk to the people who are close to you, who can, who can help give you a perspective on it. But in the end, you've got to own the decision. And once you've decided what you're going to do, think about, well, what happens if this goes wrong? You know, what are the risks that could happen? You know, things like finance, financial risks or risk on people around you. But if you do decide to jump and do something bold, then do it with both feet and commit to the decision and own that decision. So even if it goes wrong, I often say it's like, you know, there's a field with a bull in it. You jump it over the fence into the field, then you discover the bull. Don't jump back over the fence you just came over because you'd already decided that where you were before wasn't the place you wanted to be. Run across the field as far as you fast as you can and jump over the next fence. You know, but you've got to own that journey. When I left medicine and went to business, I knew on day one 
that the one thing I wasn't going to do was go back to medicine. I was going to go, if business doesn't work out, I have to figure it out. But it's for me to own because I made that decision. Good thing you didn't have my mom. She'd have killed you for sure <laughs> for making that decision. They would have thought, damn, how stupid could you possibly be? But I like the fact that you were gut, had a lot of guts to go and do that. In the book, you mentioned that sometimes working harder might not be the best course of action. What do you mean by that? Because most people think strength. you should just keep working harder. Yeah, I think that plays to strength. So um, I, I talked to one of my coaches and he said, you know, we had our um, alumni event for, you know, people that have been in my first company and it was what, 25 years on something like that. And he said, you know, we're looking around the room and there are people who've gone on to big careers in banking or private equity or own their own businesses and they've become incredibly successful and wealthy and they're super stressed out. And then one of them was an executive coach. Um, and he was like, he wasn't making the money that some of the others were making, but he was living his life in the way he wanted to. Um, and he was working from where he wanted to, and he wasn't doing a, a huge number of hours and he was loving what he was doing. And, and it, my coach, he said, everyone looked around the room and said, we want to be him. We want to be him. We want to be the one who's happy and fulfilled and doing something in line with his values and purpose. So it comes back to the idea of mindset. It comes back to strengths. You know, when you're operating in your strengths, when you're operating in your talents, and this is the positive psychology, it's like cycling downhill. It's like, I'm on my bike. I can choose to go down the hill or up the hill. Which way am I going to turn? Go down the hill. It's easier. It's more fun. You know, you can turn and go, okay, I find this really hard, but I feel I'm supposed to do it. I'm going to you know, struggle and struggle and struggle. Well, you might, that might just be telling you that you're trying to fix all your weaknesses and you haven't yet found your strengths. When you're in a place where you're doing something that plays to engagement and authenticity, i.e. you love it and it connects with your values and purpose, it doesn't feel like hard work. So, you know, throwing more, you know, at it and, and just striving for longer hours and killing yourself more. I, I just don't believe that's the right answer. You know, it's funny, I think at least in America, we get so caught up about making money. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's our big status symbol mm -hmm. that you don't really enjoy the journey because you want to get to the end. And then all of a sudden, 20, 30, 40 years flies by and you really didn't sit back and just enjoy what you have at the time. So I've been myself constantly struggling that for 40 years, have a, a pretty decent handle on it. But I can see this is what happens to a lot of people. Especially your story. Yeah. Yep. Go ahead. So uh, I was asked on a podcast last week, actually, um, what's the lesson you learned early in your career that really made a difference? And I told this story about uh, in the dancing world. So I started dancing when I was four years old. Um, and this particular chap was called Ernie Chat. Uh, he died a few years back. But he was a mentor, a coach to me, a mentor to me. Um, and you know, he'd known me for 20 years, probably. And we were dancing at the British Championships. And he was at the side of the floor. He's probably in his 80s at that time. And he beckoned my wife and I over. And he said, I see all these couples and they are training six nights a week and they're spending all their money and they're traveling around the world. And they're going to these amazing places and doing these amazing things. And they're winning competitions. They're becoming successful. Um, but they're not lifting their eyes up and they're not appreciating the wonder of what they're doing. And he said, my one thing I want to say to you is don't forget to enjoy the journey. Um, and it was quite a life-changing moment for us, actually. And, and after that, you know, when we would go and travel for a competition or something, which is a pretty intensive thing to do, and you don't get to see much outside the hotel and the 
sports hall you're competing in. We were like, we're always going to try and take half a day or a day to be a tourist and go and see Prague or go and see Vienna or go and see, you know, wherever it was we were, Amsterdam or Moscow or something. Um, and I look back now and I'm like, I've always held on to that, you know, enjoy the journey. Um, and now when I'm talking to my coaching clients about the money thing in particular, there's a really important thing, which is what's the difference between uh, I can have more and what and I can have enough. And that word enough is so powerful because at some point it's enough for what you need. And so I, I spend a lot of time talking to people and saying, let go of that idea that, you know, more is always better. You know, understand what do you actually need? What do you want? And what are your compromise to get it? So what you need, when I talk to people about that, in that need is I need to have enough to have a roof over my head. I need to have enough to put food on the table. I need to have enough for my kids to have the upbringing I'd like them to have. But I don't need to have, you know, an even bigger house. I don't need to have a third car. I don't need to, you know, eat out at the Michelin star restaurant twice a week. I want to do that. And frankly, you're welcome. If you want to do that, that's absolutely fine. But when they figure out that their needs list is actually really short and it's quite fundamental. And then you say, well, what would you compromise to know that you could have that every day for the rest of your life? The answer is a lot. So I think it was um, uh, BetterUp. So BetterUp, the coaching company based out of California that Prince Harry is on the board of. And uh, they did a survey and they said, how much of your future lifetime income would you give up to be guaranteed that every day your work would feel as though it had meaning and purpose. And people said, on average, we give up 34% of our future lifetime income to know that our work had meaning and purpose. And that's the thing. People lose sight of the meaning and purpose, which in idea mindset is the authenticity. But it's so important to them. And I say, let go of the what everybody else thinks you should be doing. If you want to go and live on an island and 10 sheep, then go do that. If you want to move to the country to somewhere where the cost of living is much lower so that you let go of the pressure of the rat race in New York City, then go do that. If you want to live in the middle of New York and do the rat race, go do that too. But you figure out what is your life that is engagement and authenticity, values, purpose, the things you love. Don't, you know, everybody else is going to have their own views, but it doesn't have to be yours. Uh can't disagree with that. The only thing I did disagree with is the Michelin star restaurant twice a week. I'm thinking that you had me all the way into that particular <laughs> point. So uh, you, you talked about ballroom dancing. It was a really important part of your life. And I guess you're almost like a retired professional athlete in that area. What did you learn from ballroom dancing about yourself and relying on a partner? Because it's really important. I mean, you have to be one and your failure to meet your perceived potential because you talk about that in the book. What was your takeaway from all this? So when I'm thinking about coaching and the idea mindset and the coaching I do with people, I I often draw on my ballroom dancing history more than I do my corporate experience because it's more fundamental. You know, ballroom dancing, like other sports or art forms, people do it because they love it. They're passionate about it. You don't, nobody makes much money in, in, in ballroom dancing unless you're in the very, very top echelon in the world. And even then, like the top, dancers in the world make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but not millions a year. It's not like tennis or golf or whatever. And so you, you meet these people who are doing it because they are deeply passionate about what they do. Now, we had 
you know, we we competed together, my wife and I, for about 10 years. And, and we traveled out to Italy in the end. So we, we got to a stage where we were like, we just want to be where the best in the world are and we want to learn from them. And, and we joined this little academy in a little town north of Bologna in Italy. And we would go there once a month. And our coach, who was a ballroom dancing coach, was that was also a very, very wise man um, and a very natural coach coach, like we would think of as a coach. Um, and I learned so much about letting go of prior expectation um, and letting go of what everybody else thought. So one example, and I talk a lot to people about this around taking people on the journey with you. So I was like, we were... I was on the dance floor with my partner in a competition and we'd take up hold and we'd start doing our choreography. And all the time we were training and learning and improving. And the judges around the side of the floor with their little pads of paper would give us a vote into the next round, a mark into the next round or not. And whatever we did, however we improved, they always gave us the same mark because they just glanced around the floor. They, all the couples on the floor at the same time, they knew who we were, they knew where we normally came. So changing their mindset was really hard. And so we figured out that we had to do something fundamentally different to make them notice. And so now I talk about make them look, make them see. And in the ballroom world, what we did was we changed the dress that my wife was wearing, the color of the dress. We changed where on the floor we started our choreography. We changed all of our steps. We changed my whole look, the cut of my tail suit. We traveled across Europe to find the right tail suit to create a different look. <laughs> wow. And then the judges were like, your dancing is completely different. And in my head, I was like, it isn't because I'm still the same person. I'm still just as good or bad as I was before. <laughs> you think I'm different because you've seen me in a new light. So, and it was our coach saying, well, if you don't, you know, you're like a plant, you're growing gradually, but they won't notice you're growing from day to day. If you burst into flower, they'll go, oh, that's a flower. And so now when I'm talking to people and they're like, you know, I'm really working hard to develop my communication skills at work and I'm trying to impress my boss, but it's like he doesn't appreciate that I, I'm, you know, not a better manager or ready to be a director, whatever it is I'm trying to be. And I said, well, when did you show him something that made him see you in a new light? And what's your equivalent of me changing my tail suit, of me changing my choreography? And they're like, oh, I could change the way I dress in the office. I could change where I sit. I could change the way I speak, not the, not my accent, but, but, you know, I could say something that they wouldn't normally expect me to say. Maybe they expect me to be quiet and I'll start piping up. Maybe they expect me to agree with them and I'll start disagreeing. And actually that whole journey changes people's mindset. And I, you know, I've met many people through my career and you can see that moment when they suddenly figure out it's not that they actually need to be different, but they need other people to suddenly notice that they're different. I learned that on the ballroom dancing floor. You always read about midlife crisis at about 50, and I guess that is the midlife almost today. Is it a myth? And if true, what precipitates it and what should they do about it? Is it really That's, true? I don't know that it's true. I, I, I think midlife crisis, I was, thinking, it was, I was thinking about this. I was like, I think midnight, midlife crisis is the moment that you suddenly realize time is passing and you realize maybe you should start doing something about it. And the first thing that you do is you start to think about, I don't know what car you're driving or whether you should wear a different hat or something, you know, something changes. But you can see that now in people in their mid-20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. I've coached people from 20 to probably 75. 
And actually, it's the same thing. It's when is that moment when they suddenly discover what it's about and who they want to be? Um, and for me, actually, it's that unlock moments. So when I talk to people and I say, when was the moment in your career when you suddenly figured out and had clarity for the path ahead? And sometimes they'll say, you know, it was when, like I, I talked to somebody last week and I asked that question and they said, I shifted my focus as what I wanted to do. And I decided I wanted to get on and do stuff at this point. And I said, what happened? So I received a phone call that somebody, an, a distant friend of mine at the same age had suddenly died. And I suddenly realized that life isn't forever and I shouldn't wait till next year. And somebody else uh, said that, you know, they'd had a moment where they were just sitting in a meeting. And they remember sitting in the meeting, I was talking to them this week, and their boss shouted at them in front of other people. And they went, that's it. I don't need to be here doing this thing. It happens to be that they were in their early 40s, but it triggered a fundamental reassessment of what was important to them. And they let go of a load of things that a year or two previously, they just wouldn't have considered doing. So really, for me, the question isn't what age are you at? It's what happened in your environment that triggered you to suddenly realize that something needed to change. And your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And, so and just it's, tell them quickly about your podcast because they might want to listen uh, to that. And if there's a link you can put, uh, that would be great. Or just send me the link and I'll send it to everybody. Yeah. yeah. So my podcast is called The Unlock Moment. Um, and, and it comes from this, these moments that people going through the journey of the idea mindset, they find this clarity. Um, and it's at theunlockmoment.com and it's on Apple and Google and Spotify and all those kind of platforms. And it's, it's interviews, long form interviews, some with people that I've coached, that I've worked with, that I've met along the way, who've had these remarkable moments of clarity. And then also more recently, I've also been interviewing, you know, major business leaders, a lot from the US, um, who can unlock the secrets of how you create those environments, where you can find that remarkable clarity about the path ahead. So I've had top coaches like Marshall Goldsmith and Dr. Mark Goulston and Morag Barrett, all part of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 group recently had James D. White, who's the chairman of The Honest Company that came on, and uh, Gary Ridge, who's recently left as CEO of WD40. And it's fascinating listening to all these different angles on what constitutes a remarkable moment of clarity, what triggers it, and what was the exact moment. The key question is, what was the exact moment when you figured it out? And it's not necessarily the same time as when you actually make the change. What I'm interested in is, when did you know? When did you know suddenly that's it? For me in medicine, it was the day I went, I don't have to be a doctor if I don't want to. That was my unlock moment. It was a year later that I actually left, but that was the point when I knew that I had clarity on the path ahead. You write about partnering with friends, family, a mentor, a coach. Uh, I would think hiring a coach would be the best option. And if you do hire a coach, how do you find the right people to interview and what criteria should you use when selecting a coach i think because people hear that word coach but they really don't know when they start talking to people what exactly am i looking for and who would be a good match for me it's really difficult i mean there 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 is a massive expansion in the number of people in the world that are now coaches you know many formally trained some you know not so formally trained um and and lots of different flavors of coaches as well so i come back to the three key questions which is one is it coaching is coaching the right 
uh, thing for you to do. And that is coaching is assuming that you have the answers inside you and the coach is going to help you unlock that. So if actually you need somebody else to help you to figure out, and it's more like I need knowledge I don't have, I need skills I don't have, then it's not coaching. And you need training or maybe you need mentoring. Um, if you've got issues that are more to do with your past, then it might be more therapy counseling that you would need. But if you're going, I want to unlock my potential, then it's coaching. Um, is it now? Well, are you ready? Are you in a position where you've got time to commit? And then who is it? Which is your question. And I think there you've got to figure out what kind of position am I in? What kind of things am I wanting to really work on? So do I need a kind of business executive coach? Do I need more of a life coach? Um, am I looking for holistic outcomes that affect all of my life? Or am I looking to do something specific like go for promotion or be more effective in my job at work? Then I think start a conversation with people around you because actually there's a lot of people now who have coach, have had coaching and have had good and bad experiences. Um, and I, I do a lot of my work through personal recommendations. So I'm a great believer in the best way to find a coach actually is to talk to people that know you well and to start getting input from them. There are directories and databases of coaches. So it's good to go to some of the coaching organizations like the International Coaching Federation or Gallup who runs a network of international strengths coaches, or in the UK, the Association for Coaching or the EMCC, which is the European Federation for Coaching. And you can, you can get from them people in your local area, people that specialize in your area. And then I'd always recommend meeting three, maybe four coaches. You were, in coaching, it's normal to have a free, what's called a chemistry conversation. So you get to meet them, you learn about them, they learn about you, and you figure out from that is this a good fit? Is this going to help me? But meet several um, and then pick one um, and start on the journey. And you should know, in my, my opinion, you should know pretty quickly whether you're whether this is a good thing to do or not. So I, I say, don't stick around for six to 12 sessions and pay a huge amount of money if you're not sure what you're getting from it. You know, you should know after two or three sessions whether there's the beginnings of something positive coming from it. Question from the audience. How can coaches be effective if they don't have the expertise in the core elements of the business? Don't owners expect some expertise? That's a very interesting question. If you're doing coaching, it's not about your expertise. So as a coach, I'm not there to tell them or even have an opinion on what they do. I think there is an element where it can be helpful to have a familiarity with that kind of world. So when I'm coaching senior executives, it's helpful that I've been a senior executive in the past. Sometimes it's a hindrance because it's easier for me to have an opinion if I've been there before. But it depends on alignment of goals. So if you're working with a senior executive and their goal is to figure out how to budget more effectively, they're not one, they're not really looking for coaching. And two, you know, you might not be able to provide that expertise. But if they're looking to figure out how to find better balance in the way they lead, or they're trying to find you know, who am I as a leader? What are my values? How do I become more authentic in the way I lead? You don't need to understand their role at all, their work at all. So, you know, I coach um, an actor in Hollywood. I coach um, a cryptocurrency specialist in Switzerland. Um, I coach a pharmaceutical executive in Germany. Um, I coach somebody who's unemployed in the US. And I'm not necessarily personally experienced in any of those things. I would say cryptocurrency is probably the area where 
when my coach, he starts talking about cryptocurrency, I have no idea what he's talking about, but that's not what I'm there for. Um, and so, you know, I, I say, you know, the conversation we should be having is the conversation's right for you. You tell me what's helpful for me to be able to help you. And what he says is, you know, I want somebody to help me reflect on what I need to do. And actually the issues are not about the cryptocurrency at all. The issues are to do with um, the way they're working, the way they're balancing their life, how they choose who to work with in the future, how they set up their boundaries. That's what's important. An additional question from the same uh, person in the audience. Does not having expertise hurt in your ability to sell that customer? It can do. Uh, it can do. So it depends. I think if you don't have expertise, you just have to be uh, able to articulate clearly what you bring. And the best way of doing that, if, if, you've, if you've got some clients, is to be able to provide some testimonials of what people who worked with you said the experience was like. So people that work with me, I, I, I would share with people testimonials that say things like, it helped me to think differently. It helped me to think bigger. It helped me to get away from the day-to-day -day crises and think about what was really important. Um, and so you're not, you're not talking about, again, the sort of technical capabilities. You're talking about the impact that you can make on the person. And my coaching, I have a coaching supervisor, you know, all coaches I think should, should have a mentor in relationship themselves. And my supervisor says, uh, and she's a very, very experienced, very good coach. Um, the less you're talking, the better you're doing. And actually <laughs> it's about creating that silence. So sometimes I'll ask my coach a question and I'll say to them something like, what's the most important thing you could do right now? And they might come get back quite quickly with, well, I think I need to set some instructions for the team. And then I'll just be silent. And I don't know whether that's the right or wrong answer, neither is it for me to say, but they'll think about it and they'll go, they sometimes go, you're doing that silent thing again. <laughs> and I just sit there and wait. And then they go, but in that silence, actually, I'm wondering whether that's not the right thing to do and what I need to do is, and then they go off. And so the, the value that I've brought is that I forced them to properly think about it for the first time. And they come up with an answer that I could never have come up with. And again, it's not for me to decide whether that's a good, one, a good answer or a bad answer, but they value, this is the only time I have in my week when I get to think in this way. Because the rest of their week is just crazy. It's just, it's just full on. So that idea of, as a coach, you're creating the space and time for them to do the thinking they need to do, that's the thing. And it's nothing to do with the expertise. So here's probably our last question. When you're doing your planning, should you write a plan like you're launching a new venture? And should you write what, uh, what you want to do and what it will take to do and what skills you have and, and skills you might need to develop to achieve your goals? What, what do you tell people when they're saying, I'm going to make this change? And, and should they put a certain amount of money aside for them to like, you know, stop what they're doing and put some real focus into it? Uh, I would say it's entirely up to them. It's got to be up to them. So when I, so I work with people through the idea mindset journey and, and they do these kind of exercises that are in the book and I say to them, you can do all the exercises or some of the exercises or none of the exercises. I don't mind. You can write an essay. You can build a spreadsheet. You can write a few notes. You can write nothing at all. I don't mind. 
If you want to share your notes with me because it's helpful to you, you're welcome. If you want to write them down and hold them for yourself but not share them, you're welcome. And sometimes that opens up the ability for them to be really honest. Say if you want to shred them or burn them, you're welcome. I just want you to go through the process in your way. And that's the most important thing. There is no right answer. For some people, the right answer is an essay or a business plan, basically like a personal business plan. And for other people, it's just, they just need to write those one or two thoughts that are the real unlock moments. On the money point, I think that's really, really important. I always say to people, you know, radical change is not for everybody. It's not right for everybody. Um, this is not, not, not a, uh, a manual for how to quit your job at all. Most people who read the idea mindset and go through the journey should not quit their job. Um, what I do want them to do is figure out how to create a working life that they love and that connects with their values and purpose. In an ideal world, they can do that in the environment that they're in, but they can build a different relationship with their boss, with their team, with their family. You know, they can set better boundaries and all those kinds of things in their job. On the money side, it's really important that you don't, in a fit of peak, throw yourself into a situation that puts yourself financially or in any other way at risk. So I always say, when you set your idea of what your plan is, now think about, well, what's that going to take? What could go wrong? If this does fail, why might it fail? And a key thing that I talk to my coaches about is you should always know your runway. And what I mean by that is your runway is, if I stopped work now, tomorrow, and I had no income, how long would it be until I can't pay you know, the rent or the mortgage or put food on the table, like the, the fundamental basics. And if that's four weeks, then that's one thing. If that's two years, that's something else entirely. And it's not for me to say what that runway should be, but you should know it. And sometimes when I'm coaching people, I say to them, do you know your runway? And they go, I don't actually. And when they go through that process, so I, I've worked with people where they thought their runway was quite short, and then they discovered it was a lot longer and it gave them the impetus and the confidence to be more bold with their choices. And I've also worked with people who thought it was quite long and discovered it was shorter. And so it helped them figure out the right choices ahead. But it's a really, really important point. I, the last thing I want is for people to read the inspirational journey of change in my book or somebody else's and then throw everything away and put themselves at risk. You know, that, that is not the right outcome. Gary, I so enjoyed having you here, and I'm probably sure the whole audience feels like, hey, they could have spent the rest of the day with you uh, listening to you talk about these subjects, and hopefully it's going to encourage some of the people who listened here and people that we send this out to, to think about stopping what they're doing now if they're not happy and make that change before, because life goes by in a flash. That's so right. thank I'm you good. for taking the time to speak to us, especially from England and the time that you had to do this. And uh, we wish you luck with your book and your practice and your podcast, which we will get out to everyone as well. Thank you so much, Marcus. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for the invitation. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. Look forward to seeing you uh, next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.